John chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. John 10, 11 to 13. The Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that we come to you as your people, but also here as your sheep. And we thank you that you have done what is necessary to save us from our sins, dying and rise again on our behalf. Thank you for doing so. We pray, Lord, that we'll appreciate more, appreciate better what it means for you, our Lord Jesus, to be our good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. We also pray, Lord, that we'll understand who you are in contradistinction to the wicked around us, to the wolves and those who would seek to scatter us and demoralize us. Help us, Lord, to understand this truth in contrast just as your word teaches. In Jesus' name, amen. We have two main sections here in verses 11 to 13. Christ has already been using this analogy of shepherd and sheep. He's already warned us of thieves and robbers in contrast to himself and in contrast to his true shepherds, his true under-shepherds or the pastors in local churches. He's explained that in verses 1 to 10. This is to make a distinction, to make a contrast between the true shepherds and the great shepherd, Christ himself, with, in the immediate context, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are mentioned in chapter 9, verse 40. Chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 21, is one unit. This is the healing of the blind man and the aftermath of that healing, and instruction based on that healing. Now he is addressing, confronting the Pharisees who are the thieves and the robbers. The Pharisees who are also the wolves and the other wild beasts. They are controlled by the devil, and therefore the devil uses them to harm and scatter and demoralize the sheep. Jesus says, in contrast, he and his true under-shepherds are the only ones that the sheep listen to. They should only pay attention to them, and they only do pay attention to them, and they will recognize when false shepherds come along their path. They will recognize it, and they will be tormented by it, they will be afflicted by it, and sometimes they are even scattered by these false shepherds. Let's delve into it a bit more. Verse 11. Verse 11 On the positive side, and as the Bible is apt to do, it always teaches by contrast, in which contrast is verses 12 and 13. The good shepherd is verse 11. The false shepherd and those who harm the sheep, they are described in verses 12 and 13. The good shepherd, verse 1, or verse 11. The first point we need to make in verse 11 God is the shepherd. God is the shepherd in the Old Testament. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's not saying it in a vacuum. 
He is saying it with the realization that the Old Testament asserts God to be the shepherd. God is the shepherd, such as Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80 and verse 1 says, O give ear, shepherd of Israel. He is the shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd himself. Isaiah teaches in Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is God himself treating his people as a shepherd treats the sheep. God is the shepherd there. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 to 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground and they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. God was known to be the shepherd of Israel, God himself. That means that when Christ is saying, I am the good shepherd, he's claiming deity. He's claiming to have a divine nature. And he's saying it in the face of the Pharisees, his enemies, who claim that God's on their side, who claim Moses is on their side, but Moses and the prophets believe God is the shepherd and Moses preached Christ, and Christ says, I am that good shepherd, the good shepherd of the Old Testament. I am that one. He's claiming deity. The Old Testament actually already anticipates that Christ is the good shepherd. The Old Testament claims that Christ is the good shepherd. If you still have your place in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24. Verse 23. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 34, 23. 34, 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Who is this my servant David? 
in 23 and 24. Who is my servant David? It's not David himself. David has been dead about four or 500 years before the time of Ezekiel. David is not going to rise again from the dead and be the ultimate and great shepherd of all of God's people. David will never be exalted to that position. Who is this then, my servant David? It is Christ who is called David because he will be the son of David. And it's obvious in the New Testament, the people refer to Christ as the son of David. He is the son of David. And here, Ezekiel, by use of metaphor, simply calls him my servant David. This is Christ, who is the one shepherd. Verse 23, I will set over them one shepherd. Verse 23, he will feed them and be their shepherd. My servant David will be prince among them, prince or ruler or king among them. It's Christ. Ezekiel is preaching Christ to be this good shepherd. Not the worthless ones who scatter and abuse the sheep, but the true shepherd, the ultimate true shepherd. Another verse is Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, 1 to 6. Jeremiah 23, 1 to 6, where the Old Testament itself declares Christ to be the good shepherd. Jeremiah 23, 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and shall bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I shall also, also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. False shepherds in verses one to four contrasted with true shepherds or true under shepherds in verse four. Then the ultimate true shepherd, good shepherd, is in verses 5 and 6, who is a descendant or branch of David. Who is this righteous branch of David? It's the son of David, Christ. Because it says in verse 6, his name is called the Lord our righteousness. That word Lord, all capitalized letters, L-O-R-D, is the divine name primarily found in, in, in many places of the Old Testament. This is where it's found. This is the divine name that's also in Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. This is proof 
here too, that Christ is this good shepherd, that he's declaring himself to be that from the Old Testament. As predicted, he now says it right there in John 10, verse 11. The deity of Christ. He is the good shepherd. Let's also notice that he calls himself good. He calls himself good, which means anyone who opposes him is evil, which he'll explain in verses 12 and 13. If he's good, then there's only good shepherds. He is the ultimate good one. And then there are evil shepherds. He's the good shepherd, and all who oppose him are evil. There's no middle ground. There's no wiggle room. There's no gray area. You're either for Christ or against Christ. You're either on the side of good or you are on the side of evil. Matthew 12, 30. He who is not for me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Either we gather with Christ or we scatter. We have to be on Christ's side. He calls himself good. He says says the same in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He is so good that in verse 28, John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. This is the good thing he does for us. He gives us eternal life. We will never perish and no one, no one will take us out of his hand. He has us in his grip, his strong grip, his strong right hand and no one will snatch us. John 10, 28. No one will take us away from him. This is the way in which he is good. When he says so, this is also another claim to deity. It's also another claim to deity. The often misunderstood passage in Mark chapter 10, Mark 10, when the rich young ruler approached Christ to ask him about eternal life, in Mark 10, 10, 17, and 18, Jesus says something back to him which people often misunderstand. Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Christ is not diverting from the fact that he's good. He's not denying that he is good. What he's doing is telling him, if you address your question to me and call me a good teacher... If you consider me to be good, are you really considering me to be good? Because if you consider me to be good, I would be God in human flesh. And whatever answer I give to you, you better obey it. If you really think I'm good, you better obey what I'm about to tell you. Does he listen to it? No. So he gave lip service 
to this address, good teacher. He gave lip service to it because he didn't really believe Jesus was a good teacher, because he didn't really believe God was good, Jesus was good, and he would give a good answer to his question about how to inherit eternal life. Instead, he just walked away in grief because he didn't want to repent of his sin. Jesus is claiming to be the good teacher, the good God with a good answer, with the good way to eternal life. That's what he's claiming in that passage. He's not denying his goodness or even denying his deity, but he's asserting it. Furthermore, in 3 John, 3 John and verse 11. 3 John 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. We must do what is good. If we do what's good, we are of God and we have seen God. Well, who ultimately does good? Christ, the good shepherd. Therefore, he is of God. He does the will of God. And whatever he says is good and righteous for us. But false false believers, false prophets, false teachers, they don't look at Christ this way. They don't believe in him in this way. Next, we learn, we learn that Christ is a shepherd of such a kind that he lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. We see him repeat this in verses 15 and following. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay, down, I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. He teaches us here, that he is laying down his life for the sheep. And in 17 to 18, it's not as though things are out of control. This is in harmony with the Father and the Son. He has authority and he has initiative to do as he pleases with his own life. This is contrary to those who accuse God, the Father, of being cruel or Christ be, of being naive and foolish? No, nothing like that. All power and all wisdom, all authority reside in the Father and the Son, and Christ willingly, voluntarily lays down his life for us. It's not that God is cruel or God is a sadist or anything like that. Nothing like that of the sort is the case. He does so Willingly for his sheep. Furthermore, John 15, 13. John 15, 13. 
Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. He lays down his life for his friends. He considers us his friends because of his great love for us. He has great love. We who were despised or despicable, we who were detestable in the sight of God, we who were worthless, we, were, we who were dead in trespasses and sins, we who could not save ourselves, we who could not do anything because of the flesh and our corrupt nature, he lay down his life with his great love for us. He did so. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And who are the us? His sheep or his friends? He did not say that he died for goats, and he did not say he died for enemies in this context. In a sense, we were his enemies, temporarily his enemies, as it says in Romans 5, 9 and 10. We were enemies in that way. We were hostile toward God temporarily. But in this context, he's not talking about us as enemies like that or as goats. In this context, he's talking about a clear distinction between the sheep and other animals such as the goats. In this context, actually, he says wolf in verse 12. Did Jesus die for the wolf? This is our next point. He died for the sheep, not for the goats, not for the wolves, not for the hirelings, not for the strangers, in verse 5, not for the thieves and robbers, in verse 8. We point this out because misinterpreters of verse 11 and other verses like verse 11, they say, well, yes, he died for the sheep, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't say, but I did not die for the goats. They say Jesus died for every person in the world. He died for every individual in the world. Every individual from the beginning till the end of time, Jesus died for every single person. They say that. And they say here in verse 11, just because it says he died for the sheep doesn't mean he did not die for the goats or for all of the people who will never believe in him. Well, yes, technically speaking, he didn't say the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but not for the goats. That phrase isn't there, but the concept is there. Because, he says in verse 5, a stranger they simply will not follow. They do not know the voice of strangers, verse 5. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Verse 12, the wolf who is not the, the hireling, the hireling is a worthless fellow here, isn't he? 
He who is a hireling and, and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. He wants nothing to do with the company of the sheep. He, he wants to go away, run away. And then the wolf himself, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He doesn't say, I came for the sheep, the cute, cuddly, domestic animals, but also I died for the wild beasts of the field. He makes a clear contrast here. And also look at verse 26. Verse 26, John 10, 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If they were the designated, preordained, predetermined, predestined sheep, they would have believed. That's what he means in verse 26. But because his enemies, his permanent enemies, his eternal enemies, don't believe, he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If you were the predetermined sheep, you would now believe. Since you don't believe, you are not my predetermined sheep. If Jesus meant in verse 26 that you could become a part of the predetermined sheep simply by believing. So if the trigger, if the fulcrum, if it hinges on belief, and if you believe, then you become a sheep. If he meant that, he would have said in verse 26, but you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. He would have said it that way. But you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. Yet he didn't say it that way. He says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The predetermined sheep that God chose to love before the foundation of the world, which he loves in time also and converts them in time at a certain moment in each individual's life that believes, eventually believes, he is saying here, I lay down my life, I give my life up for them, the sheep. He died in what is called a limited and definite, particular, specific atonement. His death, the purpose of his death, the purpose of his crucifixion was limited, definite, effectual, particular, specific for the benefit of the sheep. Since he died in our place, he ensures that eventually at some point in life, whether we are 10 years old or 100 years old and on our deathbed, eventually we will have true faith in him if we are his Elected, selected, predetermined, preordained sheep. That's what he's talking about here. One more place in John where this is illustrated. Let's compare verse 16. John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. One flock with one shepherd taking the words of Ezekiel 34, 23. 
One flock with one shepherd. Who are the other sheep that must be gathered and brought into the one fold? Well, the immediate first fold was the believing or elect or the sheep of physical Israel. Then the other sheep that need to be gathered and brought in, they are the Gentiles, such as you and me, and most of the world throughout all history. Those who are not physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about us. We need to be gathered, and we will have one flock with one shepherd. Verse 16. This concept of gathering those who are abroad or those who are in other nations and bringing them together is repeated in John 11. John 11, 47 to 53. John 11, 47 to 53. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for, that, for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Caiaphas, in verse 49, he's in this council, this Sanhedrin council, which comprises priests and Pharisees. The Pharisees were the laymen and the priests were the, the clergy. So the priests and the Pharisees. Caiaphas is the high priest. Caiaphas is a wicked man. He eventually, in, in chapter 18, he orders for Christ's execution. He endorses the execution of Christ in John chapter 18. Caiaphas is a wicked man. But because of the office he had at the time, the office of high priest, God would sometimes grant a prophecy by overcoming the wicked will, the supposed free will, he overcame, God would make the high priest, even a wicked man, speak the word of God, speak a prophecy. He would do that on occasion, and he did that on this occasion. John the Apostle calls it that in verse 51. It says, now this he did not say on his own initiative, from himself, voluntarily, from his own will, from his own free will. He didn't do it. It says, John says, John the Apostle, writing scripture says, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. It was a real, legitimate prophecy by the Holy Spirit who overcame the will of wicked Caiaphas. 
that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In verses 51 to 52, John the Apostle gives us the true, correct, accurate interpretation of what Caiaphas said in verses 49 and 50. What Caiaphas prophesied in 49 to 50, John explains in 51 to 52. And what does that entail? That Jesus was going to die for the nation, not for the nation only. That means not only for the physical Jews who are the sheep, not all of the physical Jews, but the sheep among the physical Jews, the literal Jews, but also for others who are called children of God in this context, but also are gathered into one. That's the terminology of chapter 10. Gather together the sheep, or here, gather together the children of God into one, into one family or into one flock. This is the concept. Jesus died for the sheep or the children of God or the friends of God who are literal Jews and who are spiritual Jews from Gentile nations, all in one body, the body of Christ, the church, the elect, the believers, the people of God. Jesus is teaching this in John chapter 10. This should not cause us to have bitterness or disdain for God, God's ways, God's wisdom, or despise the Word of God for teaching it. In fact, it's meant to encourage the sheep. It's meant to encourage the the children of God, the friends of God, the people of God, the believers, the elect. It's meant to encourage us that all that we need is in Christ. He has provided it for us and He has guaranteed it to us. He has assured us that what He started in us, He's going to finish in us all the way for all eternity. For I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For I am convinced that nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the reason why he's saying this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He has this tremendous, immense love and concern and care for us that he would do it for us, we who don't deserve it. And therefore, we ought to be grateful and assured that he will see us from beginning to end, see us to our journey from beginning to end. This is the kind of great love he has for us. But, verses 12 and 13. We must understand verses 12 and 13 also because we by nature learn by contrast. When we learned, when we were small children, when we learned our colors, nobody taught us everything is white. Nobody taught us everything is black. They taught us the difference between white and black Blue, yellow, green, orange, right? We learned by contrast then. We learn by contrast now, spiritually speaking. And this is the contrast, verses 12 and 13. 
He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. The hireling, the hired hand, the worker who's there, not because he loves the job, not because he's diligent in the job, but simply because he's going to be paid for showing up and pretending to care for the job. That's the hireling he's describing here. The hireling does not own the sheep. He's not concerned about the sheep because he has no attachment to, he has no motivation for the sheep. He has no love, no concern. He's there simply for the money. So when problems occur, when danger occurs, when that happens, in this case, the wolf is coming. When problems occur, whether this wolf is Satan himself or whether this wolf is the messengers of Satan, the false teachers of Satan, or he means altogether, it doesn't really matter because we know what what his basic point is. His basic point is that fake shepherds, hirelings who are not true shepherds, false shepherds, as Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34 describe them, leaders among the people, whether they be religious leaders like prophets and priests, or they are political leaders, the politicians, they are all fake and phony shepherds if they don't care for the souls of the people they lead and guide. If they don't care for their souls, they are fakes, they are phonies, they are frauds, fraudsters. Have nothing to do with them. Because when danger arises, they will not ultimately care for your souls, they will care for their own skin and flee the scene of the crime, right here. They leave the sheep and flee. And they let whatever danger is there overcome and snatch and scatter the sheep. They let, they cause, because they don't lay down their life, they don't intervene, they don't intercept the wolf and say, get away from here. I have my weapon. I have my strength to withstand you. I will not let you come this way. They don't do that instead. They see this danger and they let the danger come and assault the sheep. And then it causes the sheep to be bewildered and run here and there looking, looking for water, looking for pasture. Will somebody please feed me? Will somebody please take care of me? I know my need and no one is fulfilling my need. That is the problem here. These are fake Shepherds, false shepherds who don't really care. Remember, he's saying it in the ears of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are described in Luke 16. Luke 16, 14, and 15. Luke 16, 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money 
were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. What were the Pharisees? Lovers of money. Lovers of money. The Pharisees on the outside were lovers of money, but there was also somebody on the inside, one of these hirelings, one of these fake, false shepherds. John chapter 12. John 12 and verse 6. John 12, 6. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Who is being described here? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of these false shepherds among the disciples, the the 12 apostles. He heard the ministry of Christ. He saw the life of Christ for three and a half years. And yet he was really a thief He was there for the money. He was a hireling. He was there for the money, and he used to pilfer or steal what was put into the money box. This money box, they collected money so that they could support themselves as they went from place to place, Christ and his apostles. But he would steal from that because he was a lover of money. We have danger on the outside, and danger on the inside from false shepherds. Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, 28 to 30. We'll actually read 28 to 30 about the false shepherds and then the true one in the following verses. 20, 28. The Apostle Paul addresses the elders of Ephesus who came to visit him, and this is what he charges them. In 2028, we pick it up in the middle. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He charges them to be on guard. He says that the Holy Spirit gave you oversight over the flock, that you should shepherd the flock, which was purchased by the blood of Christ. John chapter 10, right? And then the twofold sources of enemies. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There are savage wolves on the outside who try to feast on the sheep here. They come from outside to inside. Then on the other hand, verse 30, and from among your own selves men will arise. That is, that's more like Judas Iscariot, verse 30. 
Verse 29 was more like the Pharisees. Verse 30 is more like Judas Iscariot. From among your own selves men will arise. Speaking perverse things. And what's their purpose? To draw away the disciples after them. Let me take you away to a safe and cozy place, they say. When actually they want to devour them. They want to destroy them and consume them. But Paul's not like that. Paul, one of the faithful under-shepherds of Christ, is teaching the Ephesian elders, the pastors there, to be like him, to be like Paul, and to follow Christ. 31, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to gird you, uh, give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, I admonished you with tears, I warned you with tears for three years, night and day. Warned you about what? I'm going to leave you one day, and when I leave you, I don't want these wolves to rise up and snatch you and scatter you to harm you. Be careful, be careful, be on guard. This will happen. And further, he testifies of his own righteous living before them. I gave you his word, and I told you this is what you need. And also, I did not exploit you. I did not take advantage of you. I did not hook you and crook you. I wasn't trying to get your money. You know how hard I was working. You know what I was doing and how I was living and what I did with what I had. You know that. True shepherds live that way. We have examples in the scripture of many, many warnings along these lines. Many, many warnings along these lines. Let's do a study of the New Testament only on this matter. A brief study. We have seen a few here, but we'll see a few more. Romans 16. Romans 16, 17 to 18. The point in showing you more references on this matter is to make you aware that this is a very common and continual problem. This is the common and continual sin that we find in false shepherds, in hirelings. This is the common one. That's why I want to show you how often the apostle and others bring it up. Romans 16, 17, and 18. 16, 17, and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. 
He urges them. These people cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to Christ's teaching delivered by the apostles. They are slaves not of Christ, the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They have insatiable appetites, and that's why they want oversight, control over local flocks. That's why their own appetites. And they use smooth and flattering speech to deceive the people of God. The appetites is also mentioned in Philippians 3.19. Their God is their appetite, he says in Philippians 3.19. 1 Timothy 3.3. In describing the qualifications of both pastor and deacon, he says, 1 Timothy 3.3. They should be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Sordid gain. Meaning this deceitful, corrupt, evil way of accumulating wealth. Sordid gain. Chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 10. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The people who are this way, causing this strife, why do they do it that way? Because they suppose that godliness, religion, Church, Christianity, is a means of gain. Six, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment with our physical resources. Contentment. Then there is great gain in godliness, true godliness, he means. Seven, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. They love money. It's a root of all sorts of evil. And they wander away from the faith and they pierce themselves with many a pang. They harm themselves, cause pain to themselves. Eternal pain in the lake of fire. 2 Timothy 3, 2, describing the last days. We'll read verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Lovers of money. Titus 1, verse 7. He repeats how the elder, he uses this phrase for the elder or pastor, he should not be fond of sordid gain. Titus 1, verse 7. Jude, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Jude, verse 11. For pay, they have rushed headlong. This is the way they behave. They are in it for the money. Believe it or not, no matter how smooth they are, no matter how handsome they are, no matter how well-spoken they are, it doesn't matter. They are in it for the money. It doesn't matter where they went to study, how much they studied, whether they have a PhD, PhD from an Ivy League university. It doesn't matter what they know. It doesn't matter how many books they've read. It doesn't matter how many books they've written. They are in it for the money. If they don't promote godliness, 1 Timothy chapter 6 said, the doctrine that conforms to godliness, if they are not concerned about the rejection of sin and the pursuit of holiness in their own life and in their teaching to others, first in their family and then in their church and wherever else they go, if they're not concerned about that, they are worthless, false shepherds. They are hirelings. They are literally in it for the money, for a job, along with some reputation. They're in it for the money and for their reputation. This is a very common sin, a very common sin. They don't have a concern for wild beasts. They don't fight the wild beasts. They cooperate with the wild beasts. That's who they are. We are supposed to fight wild beasts. The wild beasts, the wolves and the lions and the bears, figuratively speaking, of unbelieving people, religious people. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Paul fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, the false teachers of Ephesus. Titus 1.12 says that the men of Crete are evil beasts. Another way of describing wild, unruly beasts like wolves and lions. That's the way they are. And ultimately, these men are controlled by Satan himself. They may deny it. They may not look like it, but they actually are controlled by Satan himself. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We're supposed to be sober. 
The opposite of sobriety is drunkenness. Though we're not always literally drunk, we should never be literally drunk, but though we're not literally drunk, if we aren't using our minds in sanity, then we are like drunkards who are insane. They're not looking and thinking about reality correctly. We can't be that way as Christians. We have to be sober. We have to be on the alert like a soldier. Not sleeping, not dozing on the job, dozing when you're on duty, but alert always. We have an adversary, an enemy, the devil, and he's described as a roaring lion that wants to devour. And how does he do so? Does he show up in some kind of unusual occurrence, unusual vision or dream? Does, he sh- does Satan show up that way? No. What is the way in which he manifests himself? Through the false doctrine, through the false teachers, the false pastors, false prophets, prophetesses, men or women, whoever they are, it doesn't matter. Young or old, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who they are. It might even be members of your own family. It doesn't matter who they are. They are controlled by the devil and he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What should we do? Instead of fleeing, verse 9, like the hirelings flee, verse 9 says, resist him, firm in your faith. Resist him and stay firm in the faith. Fight against it. Argue against it. Debate against it. Yes, Jesus argued. Mark 12, 28 to 34 says so. He was arguing with the scribes and Pharisees. He, he debated and he refuted. Apollos did it. Apollos was not an apostle. Apollos was not Christ. Apollos was like you and me. And in Acts chapter 18, 24 to 28, there too, he is arguing or refuting. He's contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Apollos did. And he's commended for doing it. Therefore, you and I need to do it. We must resist, fight against it to help ourselves in our faith, to help others who are onlookers understand the difference between good and evil, the good shepherd and the evil shepherd. And then those who ultimately never repent, it heaps more judgment on them. And that is a good thing in the Bible. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. They go from death to death. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. And that's okay. That's what God intends. For those who never repent to proceed from death to death. Let's look to Christ. He is our shepherd. And those who exalt him, who have their doctrine conforming to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine conforming to godliness and reject all others. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.